Let's open our Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15. On Sunday mornings for the past several months, we've been making our way through the Gospel of Mark, and now we come to the passage, just by the plan of God, where Jesus rises from the dead. Because you will want to follow along in the text this morning. Mark, chapter 15, beginning at verse 42. When we left off last week in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus was still hanging on the cross. And as I thought as the song that the choir sang right before our time in the Word, it's really true that there was really only one reason why he was on that cross. Human beings are complex creatures. And it's rare that we do things for just any one reason. But I want you to consider carefully that Jesus didn't die on the cross out of a sense of, well, I just have to do it, or obligation, or martyrdom, or anything like that. He didn't do it because he was compelled to by a chain of events that he couldn't escape. He did it out of a rational choice because he loves us. That's why he did it, to accomplish our redemption. And as he hung on the cross, as we discussed last week, he He faced incredible physical torture, but the physical torture was small compared to the spiritual agony that he endured as he stood as a sinner in our place. Now, I say as a sinner because Jesus was not a sinner. Not even on the cross was he a sinner, but he was treated as if he were a sinner, as if he were the ultimate sinner, bearing the guilt and the the judgment and the shame that you and I deserve for our sin. And when he had finally paid that price, he yielded up his spirit to God, and he was left hanging on the cross. Think of that now as we come to verse 42. He's still hanging on the cross. Where we read, Now when evening had come, because it was the preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Well, we're impressed by Joseph of Arimathea here, aren't we? It did take real courage for him to come and to say, "Uh, Pilate, I'm a prominent council member. I'm a prominent man in this community. I'm a wealthy man. I own a tomb. He had other property. He had many things. But yet he comes and risks it all to stand before Pontius Pilate and to say, I want to identify with this man who was a condemned criminal, this man who died as a traitor to Rome. I want to identify myself with him. It says there in verse 43, coming and taking courage, he went in before Pilate to ask for the body of Jesus. And it took courage for Joseph of Arimathea to do that. Why might we say that it was courage that showed up kind of late? You see, Joseph is an example of a late disciple of Jesus because he was a member of the council. That means he was a member of the Sanhedrin. Where was his voice defending Jesus when Jesus stood before the council? Apparently it was silent. Where was his voice when he could have stuck up for Jesus many times before that? Apparently he did not. But now on this occasion he does. Now friends, it's true, better late than never. But why wait till it's late? Why not come out as a disciple of Jesus Christ now? It says there in verse 33, coming and taking courage. You don't have to wait for a later time to come and take courage. You can do it right now. 
and declare yourself as a follower of Jesus Christ. Now Joseph of Arimathea does it. And you can do it too. That's a gift that you can give back to God. You can give to him the gift of saying, God, I'm not going to be a late disciple. I'm going to be a disciple of yours right now. So while we look at Joseph and we have mixed feelings, we have admiration, but, but maybe just a touch of criticism towards him for coming out so late to Jesus. At the same time, we're very happy that he asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Do you know why? Because it gives us irrefutable proof of one fact. Look at verse 44 and you'll see what I mean. It says, Pilate marveled that he was already dead. And summoning the centurion, he asked him if he had been dead for some time. And when he found out from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Let's get the picture here, folks. Pilate receives this request from Joseph of Arimathea. I want Jesus of Nazareth's body because I want to give it a proper burial. I don't want it to be simply flung into the pit, into the dump that most bodies of crucified criminals uh, where their bodies are thrown. No, I want something different for this man. He's special. And Pilate says, he's dead already? You see, friends, let's remind ourselves that it was the custom of men in dying on the cross to have their death prolonged through hours and hours of excruciating torture. Jesus was on the cross about three hours. And Pilate says, what, he's dead already? It was a logical question, because not many men died that quickly on the cross. And so Pilate, being a very efficient man, a practical man, a Roman, he says, let's look into it. Centurion, go investigate the matter for me. I want it confirmed that Jesus is dead. And the centurion comes back. Now, if we put the centurion up on the witness stand, the lawyer at cross-examination, he wants to know. Now, Mr. Centurion, do you have experience in knowing when men die? And then centurion says, I have seen dozens and dozens of men die on the cross. I know when a man is dead on the cross. And the centurion came back to Pilate and said, he's dead. You can give this man his body. Friends, isn't that good for us to know that Jesus really was dead on the cross because it shows us that he really did rise from the dead in resurrection? Oh, every once in a while, guys come up with these crackpot theories. Did you hear one that came out years ago? They called it the swoon theory. Did you ever hear that one? The swoon theory says that Jesus didn't really die on the cross. He just kind of fainted on the cross. And so when they pulled the nails from his wrist... And when they lowered his bloodied, opened back from the cross and wrapped him in those uh, burial cloths and spices and put him in the tomb, he was still alive, just fainted. And then somehow the cool air of the tomb sort of revived him. And a couple days later, he sort of wiggled off the shelf there that he was laying in the tomb. And maybe he found a sharp corner of the rock there and hooked a little piece of the burial garments and hopped around in a circle and and unwound himself from the burial linens and such. And then he saw the stone rolled in front of the doorway in front of him and he, well, he somehow unrolled it from the inside out. And then he probably kung fu kicked the guards on the way out and then made his way out. And that's how... Well, friends, the most ridiculous thing in the world. Now, it's ridiculous. Even if you just play out the scenario, it's ridiculous. But the whole matter is, is that it doesn't even have to go that far because it's a settled matter of history right here. Pilate, the Roman governor, uh, investigated carefully to see whether or not Jesus was dead, and it came back without controversy. That man is dead. The Roman centurion, supervising the execution, attested to it. And so what did they do? 
Once Jesus was dead, after Joseph's conversation with Pilate demonstrated that Jesus was already dead, what happened next? Notice here at verse 46, then he bought fine linen, took him down. You see, he was still on the cross. Took him down and wrapped him in the linen and he laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out of the rock and rolled a stone against the door of the tomb and Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph observed where he was laid. Oh, can you look at this? Through the tear-filled eyes of the two Marys. They look on it as a distance. And there they see Joseph and maybe a couple of his servants carrying the body of Jesus into the tomb. How that must have hurt them. They no longer see his face. They no longer see the loving look in the eyes of Jesus. Just his dead body being carried into the tomb. And then the men are in there for a moment as they make the arrangements. And then they see the men walk out of the tomb. And then they roll the stone over the entrance to the tomb. Now the entrance to a tomb in that day that was carved out of a, out of a rocky hillside, the doorway wouldn't have been a proper door. It would have been something about the size of the front of this podium. You know, maybe three or four feet tall and a, a foot or two wide. It would have been the kind of thing that you'd have to really scrunch down to get in and out of. It's because it wasn't a bedroom, it was a tomb. They assumed people wouldn't be going in and out very often. And so they would use a a round rock, a circular disc-shaped rock, and roll it over the entrance of the tomb. The size of the rock might be the size of, say, like a wagon wheel or something like that. And so they would have it in a channel that was on an incline so that it was easy to roll down. Gravity would help you. But rolling it up was an entirely different matter. And can you imagine how those women felt and how they must have wept when they saw the stone being rolled over the entrance of the tomb and when it was finally set in place and the Roman guards there put their seal over that stone? They must have felt very empty, very alone in this world. Their Savior, their Lord, their teacher, their Master... He was gone and shut up within that tomb. But he hadn't been given a proper burial. You see, time was short on the day when Joseph made the preparations for Jesus' burial. And so they wanted to come back and do it right. And so Joseph left the tomb. I wonder if if Pilate didn't think it was strange that a rich and an influential man like Joseph of Marathea would want to associate with Jesus and would want to give him his tomb. This was an expensive piece of property. This was like having an expensive mausoleum place at Forest Lawn or something, and then a very wealthy man giving it to a condemned criminal. It'd be strange. You would think it was odd. I wonder if Pilate didn't ask Joseph, Joseph, what are you doing? Why are you giving this expensive tomb to this condemned man? If he had his wits about him, Joseph could have replied, well, it's okay, it's just for a few days, because that's what we're going to discover here in chapter 16. Now, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices that they might come and anoint him. Very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. And they said among themselves, who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? But when they looked up, 
They saw that the stone had been rolled away, for it was very large. So you have the scene, don't you? This is the first that they can come and do this work because the Sabbath was over, the night had finished. Now at the first light of Sunday, they come and they say, we're going to give this body a, a better burial. And they come bringing more linens and they come bringing more spices. And they say, well, what would they do with the spices? Friends, this wasn't mummification. The Jews didn't practice mummification. If I could put it just in sort of a blunt way, the reason why they brought the spices was simply because it would help the smell of a decomposing body to not be so terrible. And that's why they would load the body with these spices. So they say, look, his body's dead. He's rotting away. Let's come and do the best we can for it. And so they come and they're wondering, well, who's going to roll away the stone for us? You know, they've got some Roman guards there. I bet we can talk them into helping us. They're not going to be threatened by us. We're just a couple of women. And so they can roll away the stone and we can do what we need to do with Jesus' body and we'll leave and they'll roll the stone back and fine. But when they came, they discovered quite to their surprise, that the stone was rolled away. Now, now please get it in your mind that they did not expect to find a resurrected Jesus. These faithful women were expecting to give that body a more proper burial, but the faithful women did not expect to find a resurrected Jesus. This was not wish fulfillment. This was not a hallucination. They came and were totally blown away by the unexpected sight of seeing the stone rolled away already. I want you to remember one thing about that stone that was rolled away. It was not rolled away to let Jesus out. Can you imagine Jesus pacing back and forth in that tomb for two days, wondering when the angel is going to come down from heaven and open up that stone so he can get out? That wasn't it at all. Jesus could have entered or left that tomb as many times as he wanted in his resurrection body. A material barrier like a wall was no problem for Jesus once he was resurrected. No, The stone was rolled away to let witnesses to the resurrection in so that they could come in and see that the tomb really was empty. That's where they laid Jesus, and there's nobody there anymore. He's gone. Jesus is risen from the dead. And so the ladies were blown away. The stone was rolled away, and they they couldn't help but but peek in. And so they looked. Look what happens here. You'll find it here in verse 5, where it says, And entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Well, you bet they were alarmed. Who is, this isn't Jesus. This is a young man. He's in a white robe. They're probably thinking, what have you done with Jesus? Where did you put him? He's not here. Can't you see that we brought the things to give him a more proper burial? Now, the man whom we know to be an angel from other biblical records, from other accounts in the other Gospels, we find that the man said something very important here. He speaks in verse 6. But he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified, he is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. I want you to see that the angel paints a contrast between what Jesus was and what he is. He was crucified, beyond all doubt. That means that he was dead. That means that he died that cruel death on the cross. There's no doubt about it. That's what he was. But look at what he now is. He is risen. 
Friends, if there's anything I want to communicate to you this morning, it's that contrast between was crucified and is risen. And both of them are absolutely essential foundation stones or pillars for your Christian faith. We must receive from God the understanding of who Jesus was and what he now is. Well, what was he? Well, he was crucified. He died that cruel death on the cross, standing in our place, treated as if he were a guilty sinner in the place of us who really are guilty sinners. He took our sin, and because of what he did, he gives to us his righteousness. That's what Jesus did on the cross. And a holy, awesome, incredible transaction that we really don't know exactly how or or in what means, but we just know that the Father put upon him the guilt and the shame and the wrath that we deserve, and he bore it and satisfied the work and the will of the Father perfectly with his work on the cross. That's what was. But don't stop there. Go on to what is. Look at it there in verse 6. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He is risen. Okay, the was is was, but the is is is. I know there's been a lot of confusion in the last few years and politicians and sorts wondering how do you define is and what is is and all of that. Well, I'll tell you what is is. Jesus is risen and there's no two ways about it. And what that means is that's how he is right now. Friends, he's not in the agony of his crucifixion any longer. He's in the glory of his resurrection and in his resurrection body. And he's that way right now, enthroned in the heavens, interceding for us and loving his people and directing the work of the body of Christ from his throne in heaven. That's who Jesus is and that's where he is right now. But catch the contrast. You don't want to forget what Jesus was in the crucifixion. But you don't want to stay there either. You know, as a child, I remember going to church, and my parents took us to church regularly, not, not every Sunday by any means, but often enough. And the church that we went to, I remember it very vividly. Up over the front, uh, on, up, hanging up above the altar, they had what seemed to me to be the most enormous crucifix I ever saw in my life. I would almost want to go back to that church now as an adult and take a look at it. Have you ever experienced that? Things that you remember from your childhood as being so huge. You go back to them now and you go, well, that's not so big. It's just because you were looking at it through the eyes of the child. But I remember in my mind looking at this cross. I can remember the shape and the outline of the wood. And I can remember the sculpture of Jesus hanging on the cross. I can remember how his hands were were together with the fingers together, not clenched, not outstretched, but the fingers were set together. It it, it seemed like kind of not real. People don't go around with their hands, their fingers together like that often. And I remember the the desolate, forlorn look on his face, the the very alone and, and forsaken look on that face. And I remember the gash in his side. It looked huge. It looked like you could fit your whole hand in that bloody gash. And I remember it very well. And friends, I suppose that's accurate enough if you want to remember what Jesus was when he was crucified. But the fact of the matter is he's not that anymore. He's risen. He's risen in glory. And that's what we need to understand and take into our hearts today. He's still risen. I didn't say resuscitated. Resurrected. There's a big difference, you know. 
There's many people in the Bible before Jesus who came back from the dead. You have people in the Old Testament, people in the New Testament, people like Lazarus, whom Jesus called forth to come from the tomb. And he said, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus came to life again. But friends, that was not resurrection. It was resuscitation. The same body, the, the, the same life, the same existence that Lazarus knew before he came out of the tomb once again with. And if you notice, Lazarus, when he came out of the tomb, it's in John chapter 11, he still had his grave clothes on. When Jesus came out of the tomb, he left his grave clothes behind in the tomb. That's because Lazarus was going to use those grave clothes again. Jesus had no use for him ever again because Jesus rose to never die again. Lazarus must be the saddest man in the whole Bible because he had to die twice. But friends, that's not how it is for people who are resurrected. They rise in a body that's definitely connected to the body they had before. Jesus' resurrection body was, was from his earthly, his, his, his body that he walked in on this earth. But friends, it was not exactly the same, connected beyond any doubt. But it was not exactly the same body because this was a body far surpassing his first body in glory, in honor, in immortality, and in power. As Jesus is enthroned in the heavens, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't ever get tired. He doesn't ever get sleepy. He doesn't ever get weary. And of course, he will never die. And we receive the same kind of resurrection bodies when we will be risen from the dead. I want you to notice that the angel didn't only tell the ladies about this contrast between Jesus was crucified and is risen. But look again at verse 6. It says, he is not here See the place where they laid him. Now let's remember that the actual event of Jesus' crucifixion is nowhere recorded for us in the scriptures. We don't know what it was like. I mean, did it happen with a, with a fantastic flash of light? Was it like electricity pulsating through the corpse? Who knows? You can make up any kind of thing you want because we just don't know what it was like. But friends, the bottom line is this. We don't have a witness of Jesus' actual rising from the dead when the corpse was transformed, but we have absolute irrefutable evidence that he was resurrected, and that's what the angel shows the ladies. Come in and see for yourself. See the place where he laid him. I'm not just going to tell you about it, the angel said. I want you to see for yourselves, and aren't we glad that he did? Aren't we glad that we have eyewitnesses to the truth of the resurrection? That we have eyewitnesses, not just people who heard it from the angel. That should have been enough. But the angel told the women what they could see for themselves, that Jesus was crucified, but now that he is risen, they could see it for themselves, and they could be eyewitnesses, not just ear witnesses. I think one eyewitness is better than 20 ear witnesses. And he said, look at it for yourself, you can see. And when they looked and when they saw that that tomb was empty, that Jesus was no longer there, they could see the incredible glory and the contrast between what Jesus was and what he now is. Remember what the resurrection tells us about what is. The resurrection tells us that Jesus is finished in his work of atonement on the cross. That he paid for our sins. And the resurrection is the receipt. Now, friends, the payment was made at the cross. There's no doubt about it. When Jesus cried out those final words, it is finished, he really said, it's paid in full. I fulfilled it. It's completed. No doubt about it. The price was paid at the cross. 
then what's so important about the resurrection? Because the resurrection and the empty tomb are the receipt. Now you're aware of the need of receipts about now because the tax deadline is almost upon us. And some of you have been scurrying through your homes and your records looking for those receipts because you know very well that you can't go to the IRS auditor and say, well, I know I paid this. And he'll say, well, where's the receipt? And you say, well, I don't have one. He'll want to see the receipt, won't he? So friends, it's not just enough to make the payment. You need to have the receipt. And that's what the empty tomb is. The empty tomb tells us that the work of Jesus was completely accepted by God the Father as payment for sins. It's proof that even though it may have looked as if Jesus died as a common criminal, he actually died as a sinless man out of love and self-sacrifice to bear the guilt of our sin. Jesus' death on the cross was the payment, but his resurrection was the receipt, and it shows that the payment was perfect and accepted by God the Father in heaven. So friends, the next time that Satan tries to bring upon you that sense of gloom and despair and, and depression over what a sinner you are, go to the cross, show him the payment. But then don't be shy about waving the receipt in his face too. Tell him that Jesus' victory at the empty tomb shows that the payment was accepted and it proves it beyond any doubt. Now, friends, this is the great contrast between was and is. But I want you to know that God has a work of was and is to do in our lives as well. You, me, every one of us. Because we all have a was behind us, don't we? We do. We have something that we were in the past. We inherited it from Adam. Every one of us is a son of Adam or a daughter of Eve. Every one of us. We are born in this world in a sense of separation from God. And as we grow up and make our own sinful choices, that separation just grows and grows. That's who we are by nature. That's the was. And Jesus says, I want that was to be crucified with me. Come and leave that at the cross. And I will give you an is to be right now. And that's my resurrection power. He wants us to identify with both the was of the crucifixion and the is of the resurrected Lord. So that's what you can give to God this morning. You can agree with him. You can say, yes, Lord, I want to agree with you about who I was. You tell me that I was a sinner from birth because of Adam. That's who I was. But you tell me that I can be now a new kind of is in Jesus Christ. Someone with resurrection power and resurrection glory given as a gift to myself because of what Jesus did. That's the kind of business that God is in. Taking a was and turning it into a glorious is. Well, that's the message that they had for the disciples. Let's look at the last couple verses that we'll consider this morning. Verses 7 and 8. The angel goes on to speak to the ladies and he says, but go and tell his disciples and Peter, that he's going before you into Galilee. There you will see him as he said to you. And they went out quickly and fled from the tomb, for they trembled and were amazed. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. I want you to notice that the angel sent them on their way with a message to deliver, didn't they? They were sent, and here's the message. I want you to deliver this message. Now, at the end of verse 8, where it says they said nothing to anyone, it doesn't mean that they failed in delivering the message. What it means is that they didn't talk to each other as they left. 
They didn't discuss among themselves. You know, oftentimes, when something very significant happens, you talk about it with the people you were there with, right? But have you noticed, when something really heavy happens, you don't talk about it when you leave. Everybody's quiet. That's how these ladies were. They didn't discuss it as they left. They didn't compare stories. They didn't check notes. They were quiet until they came to the disciples and delivered the message that the angel wanted them to deliver. And do you know what kind of message it was that the angel gave? It was an invitation. Look at it there in verse 7. But go and tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you into Galilee. There you will see him as he said to you. What do you see? It's as if they're bringing an invitation to the disciples. Here it is. Disciples, this invitation's to you. And they open up and they read it. And it says, Jesus of Nazareth, now risen from the dead in glory, cordially invites you to join him in the region of Galilee for a meeting of fellowship. RSVP. And that's what they had to do to respond to the invitation that Jesus gave. Now, what if the disciples would have received that message and say, oh, I don't believe it. I don't want to receive it. It's too much trouble to go up to Galilee. I don't want anything to do with it. Friends, I'm bold enough to believe that God is still giving out those invitations. That the risen Jesus this morning is handing you an invitation. And he says, I want you to join me and to live the rest of your life together with me. You open up the invitation, and there it is. You could read it right in front of you. And it says, Jesus of Nazareth, the risen Lord of glory, cordially invites you to spend the rest of your life with him. RSVP. You have to respond to that invitation. It's been mailed to you. You have it right there in front of you. But it's just like any invitation. It's just like any offer that you receive. If you don't respond to it, then it never takes effect. You've been invited to things and you've just thrown away the invitation, haven't you? You've been invited to things and it says that you should respond, but you didn't respond. You know what that's like. Well, friends, the invitation goes out to you this morning and Jesus requests your presence. He says, meet me at the cross first. That's who you were. Then meet me at the empty tomb and then let's meet together for fellowship. If you're willing to meet Jesus in those three places, at the cross, at the empty tomb, and then for fellowship, he'll revolutionize your life. And that's his invitation to you. But if you notice, I kind of skipped something in verse 7. Some of you might have had a question about it. You said, well, David, why didn't you say anything about this? Look at it there, verse 7. But go and tell his disciples and Peter. Well, isn't that interesting? Peter got his own invitation. There's one for the rest of the disciples. And then the ladies say, oh, wait a minute. There's one more invitation. It's a special one. Peter, it's just for you. Now, some commentators look at that and they say, well, he says, tell his disciples and Peter, because Peter wasn't even really a disciple anymore. He had forsaken Jesus so badly. No, no, that's not it. You know why he gave the special invitation to Peter. He did it because Peter had a special need. Peter needed a special hope. Peter needed a special restoration. Peter needed a special word of love from Jesus. And Jesus has it for the one who has denied him the most. Friends, I'm absolutely certain that God sends out a general invitation to every one of us. And he says, come, meet me here at the cross, then at the empty tomb, then for fellowship. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. That's the general invitation. It goes out to every one of us. Maybe Jesus has some special invitations here this morning. It has your name on it. Because maybe you've denied your Lord. 
Maybe you've turned your back on him in some way or another. Perhaps you're a believer here this morning and you used to have a walk with the Lord, but you've just plain left it. You're kind of like Peter. And you don't know what you're doing anymore. And you're here on Easter Sunday morning because, well, after all, you are a Christian and Christians do go to church on Sunday and you're not a pagan, for heaven's sakes. But you look at yourself and you're an awful lot like Peter. I want you to know that the Lord brings to you a special, it's personalized for your name. He says, I want you to know that I have a special restoration for you this morning. A special time of bringing you back. I want to seal your pardon by inviting you to myself. So here's the invitation that God lays before you. What will you do with it? I think God wants you to hand out these invitations to other people, don't you? But he wants you to receive it first. And maybe if there's that special invitation with your name on it, that invitation to restoration, take it and open it and respond to it this morning. I'm going to pray right now, and as I pray, the choir's going to come back up, and they're going to give us another time of ministry and song. As they do that, I want you to think about how you're going to respond to the invitation that Jesus offers you. Let's pray right now. Father, uh, thank you for the power and the goodness and the grace of Jesus. Thank you for the invitation. First of all, the one that you give to everybody, God. And say that you want to meet us and, and, and bring us salvation and, and fellowship with us. But Lord, we thank you also for the invitation that you give to restoration. We pray that we'd respond to it and that this work of what Jesus was and what he now is, that, Lord, it would be real in our lives as we identify in him. Speak to us, Lord, now and speak to our hearts as we meditate on this song in Jesus' name. Amen.